This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we've been in a series talking about identity and our identity in Christ the last few weeks. And uh, let me tell you, I've, I've been dreading this. Um, I've known this was my week to preach probably for a couple of months now. And uh, as soon as Josh, as soon as I knew what series he was in and that I was going to fall into this series, I've been, I've been dreading it all along. Um, number one, this is a, these are very different styles of messages to preach. I know Josh has talked about our, how we preach textually and, and we expositionally, and this is sort of topical and philosophical. And so it's diff- different for me. Um, but then number two, really incomplete transparency, this is not a subject that I feel qualified to preach on at all. Um, identity is very much an area where I've struggled throughout the years. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an area where even while knowing the truth and knowing my specific uh, identity struggles by name, I still struggle with it. So I, I've very much been dreading, been dreading this. You know, I, I told Josh last week that I that I truly feel that this is a topic that dominates many, many believers. Um, and, and that's whether they're really aware of it or not. I think that the idea, the concept of identity dominates a lot of people. Um, have you ever noticed all the personality tests that pop up on social media? You know, take these 10 questions and find out what your personality is. And uh, people are so fast to share those and say, hey, look what I am. Look, look at who I am. Um, I think that's a symptom of a generation with a lost identity. We're trying to find out who we are. And as silly as it sounds, we're hoping a test, like a 10-question test on Facebook, will tell us who we are and tell us something about ourselves. Um, identity is, is very much an issue uh, in this day and age. Um, I hope some things have resonated with you throughout this series. Um, I know there's times when, especially when it's not a, a textual message and verse by verse where, you know, you're kind of wondering, oh, I don't, I don't know if I fully agree with that or that sounds weird. I've never heard that before. Um, but this is very much a, a message and a series rooted in God's truth. Um, So last week's message was particularly important. In particular, understanding that the works of the flesh aren't always sinful things. And I hope you caught that last week. Um, So often we think of the phrase works of the flesh and we think of those big sins. And specifically, we think of somebody else's sins usually. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Uh, my spouse or or my buddy has that problem. Um, But in reality... My good deeds and the things I do for this church, the things I do in my community, they can absolutely be works of the flesh. The service you do here at Keystone, the things you do for others around you, can absolutely be works of the flesh. They're works of the flesh when they're done apart from the Spirit of God and in your own strength. When you do those things in your power and it's just on you, it's now a work of the flesh. Brent mentioned it this week in Connect Group. I hope you were able to get there as there was a phenomenal truth brought out of Colossians 1.27 where it's just that one preposition 
Christ, and by the way, I don't know if anybody else caught it, but he called it a conjunction in the, in the video, and that drove me nuts. It's a preposition. Christ in you. And he said, the difference is we live often as Christ and you. When we live as Christ and you, that mentality is exactly what results in a works of the flesh Christian life. It's just me and, hey, there's also Christ over here. But no, Christ is in me. Um, so this week I want to take a look at identity theft. Identity theft. How we as believers lose our identity in Christ and the effects it has on our lives. The FTC tracks identity theft complaints. And in 2018, there were nearly 3 million reports of identity theft. Of those reports, consumers reported 1.48 billion, with a B, in losses. Those stats don't even include... Whoa. What was that, Justin? All right. Those stats don't even include uh, cybercrime, where electronic data was stolen. Experian predicted that between 2017 and 2022... $51 billion would be spent on fraud detection and prevention software. You've all heard of LifeLock. That's probably the most popular name that you've heard of in that space. LifeLock is probably the most widely recognized name. Uh, it was born in 2005, advertising to consumers to protect your identity, protect you from identity theft. In February of 2017, LifeLock was sold to Symantec, uh, slash Norton for $2.3 billion. Identity theft is a massive industry, multi-billion dollar industry, and it affects millions of Americans. But identity theft isn't a new crime. It's not even relatively new. Identity theft has been going on for over 6,000 years. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bible uh, or you've got your app, uh, Genesis chapter 3, it's on the screen behind me as well. Verse 1, you see here Satan entering here. And verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And here's the key. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's mode of attack on Adam and Eve was to twist, lie, and deceive, and his goal was to destroy their confidence in their identity as children of God. He used trickery and deception to attack their identity and their relationship with God and cause them to doubt God's love for them. You see, Satan was not only questioning God's word, but he was causing doubt in them that God had something better for them that he was keeping from them. You see what he said there? He said, not only he said, you will not surely die, he contradicts God, but then he says that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was sowing doubt in their mind that God had something else that he was withholding from them. 
he was causing doubt in their identity as children of God. Believer, Satan's attack on you is no different today. It worked in the garden and it's working today just as good, if not better than ever before. He's had 6,000 years to craft it. Satan's attack on you is no different. Matthew chapter 4, I won't go there, um, but Satan comes to tempt Christ in the wilderness. And he does so by questioning his identity as the Son of God twice. He says, if you are the Son of God. He says, if you are. He's trying to question Jesus' identity. Friends, if he's going to question Jesus' identity, he is surely going to question yours. And he's going to sow that seed of doubt in your mind. Satan desires for you to question God's truth in your life. He wants your identity as a child of God shaken. And he wants you destroyed. And he does it by telling you lies. He whispers lies in your ears, puts society's lies in front of you, and he gets you to agree to believe them. He gets you to make an agreement with those lies and believe them. Look at John 8, 44. It's on the screen. I'm going to bounce around. You don't have to go there if, if, uh, if you don't want to. But uh, John 8, 44, he sa- Jesus here says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Other versions here say he speaks his native tongue or his native language. You see, Satan, the Bible says, Jesus says here, he is the father of lies. He speaks the only thing he has because he has no truth in him. The devil is the very father of lies, and his primary tool of destruction in your life will be lies. It's been said that the devil will use 99% of the truth to float one little lie out to you. Oh, he's smart. You know what? What he's telling you may sound reasonable. It may sound like it makes sense, but make no mistake, the devil's intention is to destroy you and to destroy your identity as a child of God. John 10.10 says the thief does not come, listen to this, except for three things, to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know what, as that verse highlights, the devil, he's your adversary. He is your enemy. And what does it say? It says, be sober, be vigilant. You know what, our vigilance in defense against the enemy should match the level of the threat. The level of the threat is destruction. We've got plenty of uh, law enforcement in our church. We love our law enforcement. And correct me if I'm wrong, but... Police are more vigilant when the threat level is high. If they know there's a suspect with a weapon, they are more ready. Their gun may be drawn already when they enter the home. They're they're on alert. And friends, let me tell you, the threat level is high in your life. The enemy is looking 
to devour you. He is looking to destroy you, and your vigilance should match that threat level. We should be vigilant. You know, it's been said that Satan's greatest trick was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. You know, while we as believers know that's true, we know he exists, but I think so often we live like he doesn't. Christians either tend to act like he doesn't exist at all, or they give him way too much credit. You know, the, the, the parking spot I wanted was taken, and that was Satan trying to get me off my game. You know, no, but at the same time, if you live your whole life and you don't recognize that there's, that there's an enemy there that's coming to get you, that's trying to destroy you, you're on the other end and you're no better. Friends, Satan is out to destroy you. He wants to question God's word, question God's love for you. He wants you to feel alone and abandoned. And his primary tool for that is lies and deception. He'll use those around you. He'll use those you think are your friends. He'll use your family. He will use whatever he can. He will use the circumstances, society. He will especially use social media. And he will twist and deceive. These lies are often implanted in us at a young age and surface years later via behaviors and habits that we've created to medicate the hurt. You may not even realize it at first, but there's probably a lie that you've agreed to believe. And if you have some habits that you can't seem to get rid of in your life, if you have some habits that you can't seem to kick no matter how hard you try, some things in your life, some sins that are besetting you, most likely you're just plucking off the fruit. There's bad fruit growing on a tree and you're plucking that fruit down and it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And you can pluck that fruit all you want, but it keeps growing. You have to uproot the tree. It's in the roots. You have to kill the roots. Often those, resuit, those, those roots are the result of a lie that you've believed. I read one author who compared it to constantly cleaning the cobwebs, the habits and sins. Those are the cobwebs. Often cleaning the cobwebs, but they keep returning because the spider, the lie at the root cause of all of it, you didn't kill the spider. He's still there. And there's often not just one lie we struggle with. There can be several, some related, some unrelated. So today I want to highlight some of those lies. I want to highlight some of those lies and how we can combat them in our life. Number one, there's a lie that goes something like this. You aren't lovable. And it comes in a number of forms, but that sort of summarizes it. It says that you aren't lovable. It says you are unworthy, you aren't accepted, you don't fit in. And it's often whispered in your ear right at the time of feeling rejected. Right at the time when you feel you've been pushed aside. Friends, this is a vile lie of the enemy. Michelle was your typical awkward preteen. Chubby, braces, glasses, acne, the whole bit. She was a sweet-spirited young girl, but also shy and a little self-conscious. 
as her and the other girls in her class began growing up and gaining interest in boys, they also started become, becoming concerned about their looks, in particular their bodies. Talk of weight and diets began. She overheard heard their comments as she passed by. Crying in the bathroom alone became almost routine. Fear of not being accepted turned into hatred for her looks. One day, Michelle heard some other girls talking about a way that they'd lose weight by making themselves sick after meals. It sounded crazy, it sounded awful, but after months and years, she was desperate. Attempted comfort from her mom and dad weren't enough. Despite them telling her that she was beautiful and loved exactly how she was, she couldn't believe them. All she could see was flaws. Soon she fell into bulimia. The empty stomach feeling made her feel better. The diets never did that. Over time, the weight dropped off drastically, and people began telling her she looked skinny. Well, that felt good. It was motivation and confirmation. Soon she unhealthy and struggling to make it through her day without any energy. Her parents found her collapsed on the floor one afternoon as exhaustion and dehydration had set in. She wound up in the hospital as her family scrambled to find her help. You know what? Her image of herself had been stolen by the enemy and it was replaced by perceived flaws and disdain for herself. You know, when we agree to believe this lie, we agree to believe the lie that you aren't lovable, that you're unworthy, that you aren't accepted, that you don't fit in. We begin to behave in ways to medicate the wounds in our soul. We isolate ourselves. We push friends and family away because inside, we don't feel lovable. We've believed the lie. We've agreed to believe the lie that Satan has whispered in our ear. We feel unworthy of love. We hide our true self. And instead, we mask ourselves so people don't see the real me. Some turn to habits of self-destruction like alcohol, drugs, and eating disorders. This lie of being unwanted can result in seeking out artificial intimacy for some. Because you don't believe you aren't, because you believe you aren't truly lovable, and you'll never find true intimacy because of that, people wind up seeking feelings of intimacy in pornography, illicit relationships, conversations, and other sexual sins. Do you see where this leads? The devil has whispered a lie in your ear that you aren't lovable, that nobody could love you, you're unworthy, you aren't accepted. And the cobwebs start to spin. The bad fruit starts to grow. Belief that you aren't lovable and aren't accepted leads many to depression. Depression sets in and takes so many people down dark, dark spirals. Friends, this lie will be dropped into your ear at the perfect time. When you you'll believe it, and that lie will sink down into your heart. And the enemy doesn't care if you're a child or you're an adult. You're vulnerable to these lies. He'll take those opportunities 
and he'll plant those into your soul. You see, this lie also doesn't have to result in bad behaviors. I think so often we think of these things and we think, oh, well, it has to be drugs, it has to be alcohol or, or pornography or these other things. No, this lie can also show up in ways that seem totally fine and normal, like somebody who feels like they always have to perform and they have to be the life of the party. They have to do all these things. Why? Because if I don't do X people won't like me. People won't want to be around me if I don't do this because this is the only way that I can be accepted, that I can be loved. And then you find yourself as someone who is constantly performing in order to get others to like you, love you, and accept you. These lies will be sunk in and the devil will slide them in at the perfect opportunity. I was in college uh, with a couple of guys, one uh, a friend of mine and one who I thought was my friend. We were, I don't even know what we were talking about. What we were talking about, one of the guys was talking about this night that 10, 12 different guys all got together and they went to the Buffalo Wild Wings and, and he was talking about how awesome it was and it was this great time. And he and he mentioned, he starts mentioning all the names of the guys that were there. And he's saying how all these guys were, it was awesome. All these guys were like the best guys. It was awesome. And he, and he looks at me and he says, you know, something to the effect of it was all these A plus guys. And he looks at me and he says, not guys like you. And I don't even know if I, if I fully caught it at the time. But I want to tell you that that was used by Satan to reinforce the feelings that I had as a boy that I couldn't be good enough. And friends, Satan will use those opportunities, one little line, and he'll bury that into your soul. And I, I don't say that to, to draw attention to myself at all. I, I just want to highlight how those little tiny bits of what Satan has he'll throw that in and it'll attach that lie gives over to being dominated by what the Bible would call the fear of man the Bible says the fear of man is a snare it's a trap because you begin valuing the opinions of others far more above God's opinion of you you forget about that and only think of what other people think about you. It's where people-pleasing is born. That's the cobweb that spins when you believe the lie that I'm not good enough. I, I can't be accepted. I'm unlovable. So lie number one, uh, or category number one, maybe I should say, is that you aren't lovable. Number two is you are the sum of your mistakes. You know what, this lie is a form of shame. You see, there's guilt and then there's shame. Guilt is often just the recognition that you've done wrong. Guilt can often be a working of the Holy Spirit. You do wrong and immediately, oh, I should not have done that. 
Now, if you live with guilt because you have some unchecked sin, then that's a different story. But guilt and often just a recognition that I've done something I should not have done. However, shame, shame is the identification with that sin. Shame is when that sin is who you are. Shame is a tool of Satan. Shame says that that mistake, that, that that's who you are. It's not just what you did, it's who you are. That is shame. And shame says you're the sum of your mistakes. Other forms of it sound like this. Your past is too ugly. God can't use you. You've messed up too many times. All you do is screw up. It's just a matter of time until you do it again. That's shame. The devil loves to whisper this lie into your ear after you've sinned, right when the timing's perfect. I read this the other day as I was studying. It's this quote that says, Instead of seeing yourself in the of God, Satan gets you to see yourself in the image of problems. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants you to go from seeing yourself in the image of God because that's who you are, that's your identity, and instead he wants you to see yourself in the image of your problem. He wants you to see yourself as this. This is who I am, this sin, this is a part of me. You know what, the devil has deceived you into forgetting that your identity is a child of God and instead has tricked you into only viewing yourself through the lens of your sin. Joe grew up in a Christian home and was raised by parents who loved God and wanted the best for him. He was a believer. As a child of God, he had put his faith in Christ. One day as a young teen boy, he heard friends talking about things of a sexual nature and was curious. The internet was relatively new. His family never thought twice about having a computer in the house unchecked. As a matter of fact, it was probably so early in the internet age, there weren't even content blockers available. But he heard if he typed in certain things, the results and images would show up on the screen. Quickly, he became drawn to what he would find. Later, he was crushed by the guilt. He would resolve not to do that again and after seeking God's forgiveness, but certainly, he wouldn't tell a soul out of fear. Weeks or months would go by and he'd be fine. Then he'd fall again and again. And man, that guilt came back. Again, he would resolve that that was the last time and he'd confess that sin. But this time he started hearing whispers. You're dirty. You'll probably do it again in a few weeks anyways. If anyone knew they'd see you for who you really are, there was shame. There was shame Joe fell into the spiral for years. It came out in different ways, but always the same sin at the core. Adulthood came. So did marriage. He hoped it would be something he'd outgrow, but he couldn't shake it. No matter how good he'd do, it would rear its ugly head again. And Joe found himself not only dealing with the struggle of his sin and the addiction, he also now was failing and fighting the battle of shame. Far too heavy of a weight. 
Joe was trapped in a cycle of sin, and he believed that it wasn't just what he did, but that's who he was. He believed that that sin was exactly who he was. What Joe needed to know is that he wasn't the sum of his mistakes. He needed to know that he was a child of God, but instead that the enemy had tricked him into believing that the sin that he struggled with was his identity. These lies are designed to get your eyes off your true identity as forgiven in Christ and get your eyes on yourself and your sin. These lies say you're hopeless. You're too dirty to be used by God. You'll never overcome these sins. That's lie number two. You are the sum of your mistakes. You need to try harder is lie number three. Friends, this is one of Satan's premier lies, especially for the Christian who in his heart really does want to please God. This lie begins as early as the playground, and it's cemented into our lives as adults. You want to be successful? With enough effort, you can earn it. You want to get in shape? Be determined enough. Hit the gym hard enough. Eventually, you'll get there if you want it bad enough. You got to do more, try harder, be dedicated enough, and with enough effort, you can do whatever you set your mind to. This, is, this lie is also widely accepted and even published and pushed in many Christian circles, whether knowingly or unknowingly, often accompanied by twisted and out-of-context scripture. Pray enough, read the Bible enough, and you'll be able to achieve the life of obedience to God that you have always wanted. You just got to do more. You got to try harder, friends. That's the lie that Satan wants you to believe. Take, for example, the most widely twisted scripture in the Bible. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Never mind that Paul is talking about how he learned to be contempt, whether he was famished, broke, beaten, rejected, and in prison. American Christianity has turned this into an anthem of self. This is an anthem of self. It says, I can do all things. Right? If I just try hard enough and I want it bad enough, I can, I can do it. This lie keeps believers in a never-ending cycle of doing more. Do, do, do. There's a hymn we used to sing growing up called, Have I Done My Best for Jesus? Anybody know that hymn? All it talks about is, I need to do more. I've got to do more. Often played at very emotional altar calls. Have you done enough? Do more. And it says, because he's done his best for me. Have you done your best? Have you done it, done it, done it? There's another hymn called Walking in the Steps of the Savior. And the song repeatedly says, trying, trying. 
to walk in the steps of the Savior. It's all about me. It's all about try. Try. Just do more. All about the believer doing everything he can. You see, friends, this is the most spiritual lie. This is easy for us to believe. We'll swallow that pill with a smile on our face because it fits it, right? It fits the American lifestyle. I just need to do more, do more. But friends, what this belief results in is that it results in a Christian who relies on himself and relies on his own works for righteousness. It's the exact opposite of the gospel, the exact opposite of the gospel. It results in a Christian who lives his life without any faith for the work of Jesus on the cross. Besides that one time at salvation, and then immediately now it's all about me. I've just got to do enough to please him. And we put all of our faith in our deeds. Friends, I probably lived this life for the first 30 years of my life, never knowing it. Never knowing it, never understanding it. I lived as if I had to earn God's favor. Oh, I would have told you salvation was all Jesus. It was all God. But the rest, this is me now. I've got to do this. I've got to earn God's favor. I've got to earn his blessings. If I want his blessings, I better do this. I better hit all these boxes. I better check this list. And that's as heretical as believing in myself for salvation. It's no different. Just I've now abandoned the trust that I had in Christ on the cross, and I'm believing in myself to earn God's favor. Belief in this lie is evidenced by a checklist Christianity. It's evidenced by a checklist Christianity and a constant concern for having done enough. It's constantly on your mind. Have I done enough? Did I, did I do everything I could? Altar calls and prayers are filled with this prayer. Lord, help me to do more. Help me to do more for you because you're being beaten over the head with you haven't done enough. Try harder. And friends, it's a lie straight from the father of lies himself. So we've talked about a few categories of the lies. Uh, I want to quickly talk about how we can overcome the lies of the enemy. Ephesians 6 uh, in verse 13 here. I'm going to look back here so I don't have to get there. Uh, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all or perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Friends, if we are to combat the lies of the enemy, we must put on the armor of God. We must put on the truth. We must put on righteousness, faith, the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, the truth that God has about your identity that the devil wants you to forget. Number one is that you are the child of God and a joint heir with Christ. 
Look at Romans 8. It's, again, it's up here behind me. Romans 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Friends, Satan wants nothing more than for you to get your eyes on yourself on the things that you do, on the things around you, rather than your eyes on the fact that you are a child of God. That is your identity. You are a child of God and a joint heir with Christ. You've been adopted. You've been chosen and brought into the family as a joint heir with Christ. Number two, you are chosen by God. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that what you, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Uh, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. 2 Thessalonians 2, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You know what, friends? Others may reject you. You may feel as if you were pushed aside. The devil may have whispered in your ear that you were unlovable and you are unwanted, but you are wanted. God chose you. Satan wants you isolated and alone. He wants you to forget that you were chosen by God himself. Number three, there is no more condemnation. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in, who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death you are not the sum of your mistakes God's shame or the shame that Satan has whispered in your ear does not rule over you this truth says I don't have to live in condemnation I don't have to live in that because Jesus bore my sin I don't have to carry it anymore number four my sins don't rule over me anymore I'm a new creation 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. I'm not a slave to that sin, and my past doesn't rule over me any longer. As we said last week, when I live in sin, I am acting out of character. That's not my character anymore. I am acting out of that. The sin is not who I am. And I added one more. Sorry, Justin. Uh, I don't need to earn God's favor, number five. Because why? Because he has already qualified me. Colossians 1.12, and I'm going to get there because it's not on the screen. This truth caught me that first week of our study in Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father. And look at these next Four words, who has qualified us. 
to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You know what? I don't have to qualify. I don't have to do enough to get there to earn it. He has already done it for me. He's qualified me already. You know what? Ultimately, to have the victory God has intended for our lives, we must confess to God that our belief in these lies from Satan. We, we have to confess that we have believed these lies. First John 1 John 1.9 says to confess, and that word just means to say that I'm in agreement with God about my sin. Confession just means that I'm saying the same as, that I am agreeing with God about my sin. We also have to reject these lies. Friends, you have to reject the lies that are down at the core. And then... That's not enough. We have to arm ourselves with the truth of what God says about us. These are daily actions. Daily confession when we fall. Find another believer you can confide in for help. But don't lose sight of your identity in Christ. You're a new creature. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a joint heir. That means you're, you have the same right to God's riches as Jesus Christ himself you're forgiven. You've been made free from the power of sin. You've been given power over sin through the Spirit within you, through the gospel. Don't forget these truths. The lies of Satan are there constantly. Don't forget the truths. Let's pray. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.